Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Details about our lives from social media accounts to banking information to health records can be found online. And that can have negative consequences when our personal information is unknowingly accessed. Just last week, news broke that Yahoo was hacked, compromising the information of millions of users. Then there's state-sponsored hacks by countries like Russia and China. And you have to wonder, is any of our online data safe? What if you own a small or medium-sized business? How do you keep your customers' info secure? Coming up, we'll hear from an FBI agent who knows a lot about computer crime, and we'll explain how the federal government assists the private sector. But first, we talk to a computer security expert about how the private sector protects itself from cyber attacks. And we want to hear from you. How concerned are you about your personal information online? Do you have faith that companies which have your information also have safeguards in place to protect that data? You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Email where we live at WNPR.org. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. In studio with me now is Matt Kozlowski, Vice President for Professional Services at Kelser Corporation in East Hartford. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Good morning. So tell us about Kelser. I understand that um, the organization helps prevent cyber attacks or security breaches. You give advice and guidance to companies. Tell me how you got into this work. Yeah, absolutely. So um, we've, we've done a lot of work. Uh, we've actually been in business for 30 years, so we, um, we, we see a lot of customers from um, commercial accounts all the way up to enterprise, and we really saw a need, uh, especially in kind of the um, commercial small business space, um, to help people with with cybersecurity concerns and protecting their data and um, their customers' information. Did you say the company's been around for thirty years? Yeah, we actually have been. Yep. So yep. how have you adapted to all this? Uh, you know, the new technology and yeah, and the um, cloud and all that. Yeah, yeah. So that's um that's something that um we kind of pride ourselves on is always staying kind of current and um you know, in a way, helping keep our customers current also. Yeah. So give us an idea when you say your customers, your clients, I mean, who are you helping? Yep, yep. So today um, we help everyone from um, hospitals uh, to um, financial institutions, uh, law firms we, we do a lot of work with. Um, we've even helped uh, community colleges in Connecticut um, and other uh, private universities. I mentioned the Yahoo hack, and yeah. from the reports I've read that this is not the first time Yahoo has been hacked. Yeah. And so I'm curious, when you look at like a, a tech giant yeah. and the resources this company may have versus a small business, I mean, where are the vulnerabilities for the clients that you serve? Yeah, so um, that's that's exactly one of the reasons, too, why, why we got into it was um, a lot of the tech giants like um, Yahoo, and even um, if you look in downtown Hartford, New Haven, Stanford, the big logos that you see, uh, they actually have really um, um, generally mature cybersecurity strategy programs um, where the smaller um, commercial-sized businesses, just it just hasn't happened probably until uh, right now. So, Is it because of a lack of resources or a lack of knowledge? It, I think it's definitely a lack of resources. Um, and, you know, uh, people didn't always think of um, themselves as targets because in the news you hear, well, Target, Yahoo, um, things things like that. And it, I, don't, I don't know if it exactly hits home because you're not hearing it all the time. Unfortunately, it hits home um, when something happens. 
Um, and um, we, we certainly help people out in that case, but we'd really like to help people out, you know, before that happens and kind of hopefully prevent it to begin with. Well, we were talking about, you know, a lack of resources, you know, depending on the kind of company that you work for or own, you may have someone that's dedicated. That's their job is to make sure that the information that um, is on servers is secure. Uh, but when you when you work with small companies that are just, you know, wading into this, is it because they don't have particular staff that are doing this? And what are the what are their options? Yeah, absolutely. So um, to do a cybersecurity program well and do it right, it actually requires a full team of people. Um, most uh, like kind of medium, smaller size businesses, their team of people is like running the business for them. I mean, they're, you know, helping people with Word. They're, you know, keeping their servers up and running. And they just don't have the time to dedicate, not just um, in terms of um, uh, like working on the security controls and putting the proper controls in place, but but even researching and staying ahead of um, kind of trends in the market and, and know what to look for. And so what does it cost for a company to really uh, get serious about securing uh, yeah. customer data? Give us an idea. Yeah, I mean, um, I guess uh, the, it can vary wildly, first of all, and it kind of depends on the market you're in and what regulations you fall under. Um, I see uh, some companies are spending um, you know, a couple thousand dollars a month um, on protecting their environment, all the way up to, again, depending on um, what you're doing and what regulations you fall under, uh, maybe closer to kind of even the million-dollar range. So, And when we look at software, I mean, um, are there spe- is there specific software that caters more to companies versus, uh, you know, the personal computer user at yep, home? Yep, absolutely. Um, so um, by, we, we work with a lot of um, higher-end kind of manufacturers that um, that provide specialty software to do a lot of stuff. So um, one of the other things you kind of hear in the industry today is like big data, um, analytics, things like that. Um, what's interesting to see is um, a lot of the um, like the, the higher end security companies developing the software are mixing not just, um, you know, known threats, known vulnerabilities and analytics on maybe someone's network, but they're using the power of big data to also analyze that and kind of feed it back into the system um, to, to identify threats, um, you know, in advance. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. I'm speaking with Matt Kozlowski, Vice President for Professional Services at Kelster Corporation in East Hartford. Uh, they have clients, uh, small to medium-sized businesses, and they're helping them uh, keep their online information secure uh, from cyber attacks. If you have a question or a comment, 860-275-7266, the number 860-275-7266. And you can always find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, Matt, you were mentioning known threats. So give us an idea of what are some some of the hacks, like when we were talking about hackers, like yep. what are they looking to do? Yep, yep. So, um, so kind of the the modern hack and what they're looking to do is um, extort money. That's that's kind of what's going on for the most part with with businesses today. Um, to uh, to an almost equal extent too is um, stealing trade secrets, um, information, intellectual property there. And I mean, um, when you look at uh, businesses in Connecticut, um, kind of again, we hear the real big ones in the news often, but um, I have the luxury in a way of meeting with a lot of different types of companies in different places in Connecticut. And uh, Connecticut has a wide variety and a huge base of kind of medium commercial businesses. 
um, that 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 kind of fall into this category. You mentioned manufacturing earlier. You know, yeah. A lot of defense contractors yes. in the state, a lot of uh, small businesses that uh, provide components yes. to like the big yep. EB, the big Pratt & Whitney. Yep. Um, so how do you work with them? Yeah, so um, the kind of the big thing in that area right now is um, so protecting them, of course, but um, kind of when you're looking at um, supply chain and how um, government regulations are coming down, there's, um, there's something called like the NIST framework for cybersecurity. Um, so um, even if you make a small part and you happen to be maybe part of um, Pratt's supply chain to a government contract, something like that, um, you um, could be on the hook to becoming NIST compliant. Um, and there's actually dates and, and things wrapped around that. So um, we're actually doing um, some NIST uh, type gap uh, assessments and um, kind of writing the ship in that way. Is there sensitive data that companies have where um, you know they shouldn't be keeping them on online servers, so to speak? I mean, like just some tips and tricks that you yeah. that you're telling your clients. Yeah, yeah. So um, the first thing is, uh, the, the, it might sound rudimentary, but um, understanding and knowing where your data is. Mm-hmm. Um, so today, with the proliferation of things like um, like Dropbox um, and and just like cloud storage sharing services, where it makes it easy um, for people to take their work home, you know, work home. Maybe they're even doing something where they're just emailing it home and then emailing it back when they when they worked on it. But um, unfortunately, uh, a lot of that information can be really sensitive, especially um, if we're thinking about um, healthcare information. I mean, um, patient records are incredibly valuable, kind of um, on the on the dark web. So. I think even in Connecticut, there have been issues with uh, data within um, insurance companies or healthcare um, providers that have been compromised. Yep. And it yep. can be something as easy as a, a coworker that leaves a, a work laptop yep. in their in their car, yeah. and they have all this data there. Yeah, yeah. I, so kind of along those lines, it's the the kind of cyber criminals today, especially the ones attempting to extort money or trying to trick people into doing um, like uh, wire transfers, things like that. Um, or stealing patient data, um, they might rely on, we'll take the healthcare industry. Like, I have um, nurses in my family and um, and friends. They're the nicest people you would ever, you know, ever meet and, and super helpful. And um, unfortunately, that, that, that also, that kind of beautiful aspect of human nature um, can be used against you to trick you into, into doing things or maybe sharing your password or, um, or something along those lines. Um, I was reading that you, you know, there's also the option of not um, maybe unplugging hard drives that have like, you know, important information. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's it's unfortunately um, very difficult to do that today. Um, Today, we're kind of in a hyper connected world. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, a lot of people, too, are talking about kind of the Internet of Things where everything from your, um, I don't know whether you believe it or not, but your toaster to um, light fixtures is, is a legitimate thing where everything will be connected to the Internet. So. Um, so thinking you can completely disconnect yourself, um, I don't. I don't actually know if that's a reality now or if it will be in the future. So it's it's more about understanding um, your risk, um, kind of where your information and data is, and really doing the best job you can protecting that, um, and preparing for the day that something does happen. So don't don't assume that um, you know it, it never will happen or it might not happen. The best planning today is done by um, it's going to happen, um, and here's how we're going to handle it when it does. You mentioned when people are hacking into systems or looking to extort money. You know how much how much of an uh, I guess profit is there for hackers yeah. to take when you look at um, industry yep. and who has is most susceptible yeah. to um, cyber attacks. Yeah. So let's um let's talk about uh, ransomware. So that's kind of the the popular thing that's that's out now, unfortunately. So um, the the basic premise is um, someone is somehow tricked into running a program on their computer. It scrambles their data. 
um, and it's held hostage. So um, folks in that case uh, are looking at restoring from backup or paying a ransom. It's usually about um, $1,200 to to kind of get their data back. And um, that might not be like a lot of money in that moment. To me, it would be, but, um, but, you know, kind of scale that up and you can see how this could be a pretty wildly profitable industry, unfortunately. I know you can't talk um, specifics about what kind of problems some of your clients have come yeah, across, but yeah. talk about, give us an idea, you know, obviously don't name them, yeah, but yeah. something that a company, you know, unfortunately they fell fell victim yeah, to this and yeah. how they got help from you. Yeah. Um, so, um one of the one of the biggest um, kind of weaknesses is that that human aspect. So um, a lot of hacks today require um, maybe not require, but kind of rely on people to be tricked right into doing something. So um, what we'll do uh, often is um, cybersecurity awareness training. So we're actually um, not just putting technical controls in place, but it's it's incredibly effect- effective to really um, talk about cybersecurity help people identify um, different things that are going on and um, kind of protecting the human aspect of it can be um, very powerful in protecting a whole organization. So is someone getting an email that they open that then corrupts? Well, <laughs> that's 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 one version of it. Um, it can actually even get sneakier than that. Um, so two, two kind of examples there would be um, there is some um, modern ransomware, for example, where um, maybe someone was tricked into it. Um, maybe they clicked on a link, something, something, something happened. Um, it does two things. It'll actually scour your network looking for financial information, social security numbers. And then if it doesn't find it, it'll encrypt your data. Um, so it's kind of like th- they're really getting sophisticated in, in what they're doing. Um, the other thing, too, is uh, just kind of old fashioned. Um, I'm going to trick you into giving um, giving up your password somehow. Maybe I'm going to send you, um, you know, a very convincing email like, oh, your IT company, you know, requested your support and we need you to put your password in here. Then um, hackers will go in um, very silently, monitor um, emails to and from, and um, and then at the right moment, um, just based on kind of your own patterns and your word, they'll send an email to someone saying like, "Hey, um, you know, my um, my account information has changed. Um, send all new um, wire transfers to this account number," and um, and that that can be a way of of just losing money. I mentioned Yahoo a few times. Again, this latest report that they were actually hacked in 2014, 500 yeah, million yeah. users affected. But I'm, I'm we're just hearing about this today yeah. or last week. So, you know, explain the lag time. Like yeah. when do businesses often find out they've been hacked and hasn't yeah. the damage already been done? So um, let me give you a chilling statistic uh, for today. Okay. So um, so so um, most businesses that uh, this was according to a Cisco um, security report that came out. So. Um, um, based on real-world statistical information. Anyway, um, if you're hacked today, you won't know about it at least until 100 days from now, right? So it's kind of like 100 days from now, I actually looked up this morning, um, <laughs> is Friday the 13th in January. Wow. <laughs> so, um, so kind of the message there is what are you doing between now and Friday the 13th in January to either prepare um, or defend against something, right? Um, you're, you've obviously seen your client base grow. Is it because of fear of lawsuits? I mean, Yahoo is now getting sued. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, it's. I would say it's a it's a mix, and that kind of depends on the industry. Some of it is fear of lawsuits. Some of it is fear of, um, you know, just being tricked into um, wire transfers or having to pay up. Believe it or not, the most major thing um, that that I see, especially for the smaller size businesses, that it would be difficult to recover from is the reputation damage. So. Um, if you're, you know, you have a, you know, your primary care physician, you know, you know, 
relatively small office. They get hacked. All their patient records are gone. I mean, I don't know. Would you would you go back? I, I don't know. I mean, reputation damage can be really severe, um, especially as you get to the smaller end where a business might not be able to recover from it as easily. I'm speaking with Matt Kozlowski, Vice President for Professional Services at Kelser Corporation in East Hartford. As we talk about cybersecurity and how small to medium-sized businesses can protect themselves. After the break, an agent with the FBI's Computer Crime Squad will join us in studio to talk about how the Bureau works with businesses to prevent cyber attacks and hacks. You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. This is where we live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We're talking cybersecurity today, specifically how small to medium-sized businesses can protect themselves from getting hacked. What's the federal government's role in all of this? To help us answer that question, Judy Eide joins us in studio. She's an FBI special agent currently assigned to the Computer Crime Squad at the Bureau's New Haven Division, also coordinator of the Connecticut chapter of InfraGuard. Judy, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks so much. So we've heard a lot about cybersecurity in recent years. Um, How big of a priority is this for the FBI? Well, it's a very large uh, priority. We've got uh, lots and lots of agents working on this. And as you know, it's a really top priority besides our terrorist uh, look. I mentioned that you are um, also, you coordinate what's called the Connecticut chapter of InfraGuard. What is that? InfraGuard is a very important um, aspect with the FBI. It's really our handshake with the public and private sector. So um, currently in New Haven, we have almost 800 uh, members. And matter of fact, Matt's one here, too. (laughs) I am. And so the FBI, so you meet regularly with businesses and those who help businesses avoid cyber attacks? Or explain the work that's being done. I read that this this has been around since 96, actually. It has. It has been around since 96. And uh, actually, after uh, 2001, really, with... All the threats going on, that really bumped up a lot of the chapters. So every FBI office has an InfraGuard coordinator. And um, really the the goals are to increase uh, levels of information and reporting between the InfraGuard members and the FBI. It's also to increase interaction and information sharing among the InfraGuard members and the FBI regarding critical infrastructure, the vulnerabilities, um, and interdependencies. So there's 16 critical infrastructures, and we try to have uh, reps in each of those. And it's, again, about that information sharing. And we want to provide a forum for the InfraGuard members to report potential crimes or attacks to the U.S. When you say that there's 16 critical infrastructures, what do you mean? Water, gas, electricity, okay. all those. Mm-hmm. And Matt, you're a member. Your company's a member. So what, what do you get out of InfraGuard? Uh, so um, advance notice of kind of uh, threats that are out there. Um, I think uh, information about um, different threats and things that are going on that the FBI is aware of. Um, my my uh, opinion is if the FBI is concerned about it, uh, we <laughs> we certainly should be. <laughs> So tell me some of the scams that are out there, Judy, from your perspective uh, as part of the computer crime squad of the FBI. Well, you know, we've got um, pretty much the three main ones that we deal with. And Matt hit on one of them, which was the ransomware. And then, of course, um, we've got the business email compromise, which is a type of payment fraud that involves the compromise of legitimate business email accounts that belong to, like, say, a CEO or CFO, top executive. And that uh, the purpose of conducting uh, unauthorized wire transfers is what the bad guys are doing. So through social engineering, the criminals send wire transfer instructions using the victim's emails or spoofed emails account. And the estimated losses are over $3 billion worldwide. 
The other uh, important area that we look at are the intellectual pro property thefts, which is robbing the individuals or companies of their ideas, inventions, and um, creative expressions. So this includes trade secrets, proprietary products, and parts of movies, music, you know, software, counterfeit, uh, aircraft parts. And these are all um, criminal, you know, top priorities for the FBI. You mentioned the business email compromise. Is that like, you know, I think there's probably not anyone who, anyone who's listening has probably gotten the email from the Nigerian prince who's promising us a lot of cash if actually, we do. <laughs> actually, it's a little different. Okay. So this is this is an email that's coming from, you know, your boss, the head of the organization to the accounting firm saying, hey, I need you to send a, a wire transfer $20,000 to this account immediately. Uh, and usually the boss is away or not available, and they do that. Um, you know, the thing about cybersecurity, it's a, it's a real shared responsibility. And so when Matt talks about educating the insiders, it's really important to educate the employees to look at that email. And they may notice something wrong, that the boss, that wasn't really the boss's uh, correct email address. And so, um, you know, that insider uh, training is so important. It's almost unbelievable when you think that people do fall for that, but it's pretty easy to fall for it. It's very easy. And, and sadly, um, you know, I, I can tell you that I've had different cases. Like uh, over the past year, I've had three women who have lost over $300,000 each because they've fallen in love online, right? They've never met the person, and yet they, they're sure this is the one. And they're sending phones to, you know, Nigeria or abroad. They're sending computers. They're sending all these things. And the the old scam was that the guy never showed up for dinner on Friday night, right? Mm -hmm. Now there's a twist to it where a person does show up, and the woman says, you know, you don't look exactly like the guy I've been emailing with, but okay. Mm -hmm. So they have a, a very romantic night, and uh, the next thing you know, uh, about two weeks later, she's not hearing anything from him and, and gets a picture of a, a ransomed, you know, uh, picture where he's bloodied up. And so now she's mortgaging her house, sending all the money to the bad guys. So... It's really important to stay, you know, educated in these scams. My producer is telling me that's the love scam? Yes, the love scam. I haven't heard of that one. Yes, <laughs> falling in love with somebody you don't even know. There, there's also that, um, the tech support scam where um, people get an unsolicited call from tech support. Um, they take over their computer, um, and then, you know, a couple minutes into it, they're asking for money, like, oh, we found this virus. And um, and it's, it's, it's incredible how, um, uh, you know, tricky these people can be. I think a lot of us are probably like, oh, that wouldn't happen to me. That'll happen to my grandma or my mom or my dad. They'll fall for that. But that that happens. It's happening. <laughs> this is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. In studio with me is Judy Idy. She's a special agent with the FBI assigned to the Computer Crime Squad, also coordinator of the Connecticut chapter of InfraGuard, where the FBI works with uh, small and medium-sized businesses uh, to help them, assist them, to avoid being attacked and information being stolen. Also in studio, Matt Kozlov. Vice President for Professional Services at Kelser Corporation in East Hartford. You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266, or you can tweet or us at Where We Live and find us on Facebook at Where We Live. Um, Matt, I mentioned the Nigerian email scam. So what kind of scam is that? Um, that would be a phishing uh, mm -hmm. attack, just kind of generally speaking. Um, so you have the, uh, the phishing attack where, um, you know, there's information um, – when we conduct cybersecurity training, for example, we actually go through some sample emails and kind of point out um, they've gotten a lot better, but um, like imperfect uh, uh, grammar, things like that, odd spacing, weird capitalization type stuff. I mean, that's generally uh, pretty obvious. Uh, uh, you know, well, maybe not so much, and um, that's why we have to talk about it. But yeah. yeah. 
And Judy, because you're with the FBI and you've been following this for some time, I mean, who are the hackers? Who are the people that are um, perpetuating these scams? Where are they coming from? They're coming from everywhere. We've got uh, young adults who uh, don't like big businesses, and so they join groups like LulzSec and Anonymous, and they want to uh, make a statement, so they attack their websites. Um, We've got uh, other folks who are foreign actors who don't like the U.S. or specific companies or specific individuals, and so... They want to make a point and uh, take down uh, the company's businesses or their individuals or, or uh, get their money. And Matt, you want to add something? Uh, it's it's just like a whole chain of, of cybercrime right now. I mean, like like Judy said, it's it's all over the world. You, you can't even really identify a single like country. I know a lot of people might want to do that, but there's no real way to identify or single out countries or you know, individual groups. It's just, it's coming from everywhere, including um, inside the United States, too. And Judy, you mentioned earlier, you know, with with, uh, terrorism, obviously the government is paying attention um, with cyber attacks. Is it also the concern of if people are extorting money from U.S. corporations, where that money is going and how it's being spent? Yes, it is. It's um, it's always concerning. So, you know, at my level, I'm never sure where it's going, right? Um, there's always, you know, rumors or, or ideas about where it may be going. The thing about the, um, you know, fighting this is that we can't, the FBI can't fight cybercrime alone, right? So um, we've got a national cyber investigative joint task force that allows us to coordinate a lot of efforts with dozens of other federal partners throughout the intelligence community and also the Department of Defense and Department of Homeland Security and, and Secret Service. Um, InfraGuard is a great way to uh, work on that locally. And so companies may have um, uh, other branches abroad. And so it's important that that's how we open up the communication and they can give us this information or they can give some of the other um, agencies that information to share as well. And then we can get a better connect and idea of what's going on. Because we're focusing on small and medium-sized businesses here in Connecticut, how susceptible have they been here to these cyber attacks well, the state businesses are under assault by foreign bad actors all the time who look to, you know, get our important American information or blackmail those, comp- those companies um, by threatening to release stolen trade secrets. Um, and we've got some very important companies here in Connecticut. So um, the small business, they may face extinction, ex- extinction Sorry, <laughs> if they're compromised financially or their intellectual property is stolen. I've had small companies who've lost $30,000, and that almost devastates them. So again, and part of that goes back to reputation, as Matt talked about. Um, if companies are not spending the money on their cybersecurity and they're not um, paying away, you know, attention to what's happening in their systems, um, other companies you know, or individuals may not want to do business with them in the future for their reputation as well. And Matt, you mentioned earlier that when that happens, sometimes it's too much for a business to recover. Absolutely. Depending on um, the business itself, uh, what, what they do and um, kind of their client base, it absolutely could be difficult to recover. Uh, you mentioned also, Judy, um, in Connecticut, um, there's very important companies, obviously a lot of defense contractors and, and smaller suppliers right. who are, are giving them components to, for them to build these, um, these defense products. Um, is that something that's a concern? And that, you know, is there, when you look at all of the different computer crime squads that the FBI might have nationwide, um, when you look at Connecticut, I mean, when we're looking at the defense industry, we're looking at the healthcare industry, I mean, I'm just curious, you know, where you see most of, um, you know, the concern going. 
Well, there's a great concern, but the one thing about InfraGuard, and then we have some other programs that deal with our defense contractors, and we have a very, um, I wouldn't say confidential, but it's a very trusting, confidential relationship with them, and they reach out for us to discuss uh, whether their employees have had uh, been targeted or the company's been targeted as well. And so having uh, a, an organization like InfraGuard where we can have that trusted conversations, uh, even amongst other groups that uh, join us, is very, very important. Um, you know, the FBI's statutory authority, our expertise and ability to combine resources across multiple programs makes it uniquely situated to investigate, collect, and disseminate the intelligence about the, you know, and how to counter cyber threats from criminals and nation states and terrorists. And so this is so important because we, we've got the ability and people to do it. You mentioned these hackers are coming from everywhere, but oftentimes in the news, it's, we're hearing about Russia and China. Are they our biggest threats? Uh, I would I would say so, and I'm no cyber expert, really, um, yeah, but they are uh, some of the ones that we're seeing the biggest uh, problems with. One of the things about InfraGuard as well is that companies can um, submit malware sa- samples to um, uh, through a portal in InfraGuard, and that's so important because we can see combinations and comparisons and um, you know, what's happening. So let's say three different airplane uh, facility parts are getting hit by the same IP address or the same country. That's kind of interesting, right? So the same with different industries and the different sectors. We like to take a look at that. It gets analyzed and that information gets sent back to the company confidentially. And it, and then they can take a look at it and how to defend against it with companies like Matt's. <laughs> this is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We're talking today about cyber attacks and the threat of hacking. We did get a Facebook comment. I'll read it to our panelists. Um, someone wants to ask you to discuss brute force attacks on WordPress sites. Matt, do you have any information on that? Um, so uh, just kind of a, not real specific to, to WordPress. I mean, that it happens like so brute force attempts would be, um, you know, having a computer system or systems of systems um, that just hammer away, trying maybe different password combinations, trying different um, uh, known vulnerabilities, things of that nature, and just really hammer at the site um, till, till, till kind of they get in. Um, it, it happens. Um, a lot of um, hosted WordPress sites, for example, um, are, are pretty decent about keeping um, things patched and, um, and, and password policies and so on and so forth. But, um, yeah. And Judy, before we um, head to break, I don't want to run out of time. Obviously, the FBI is a federal law enforcement arm. What else should be happening in the federal government? Anything Congress can do to to help, uh, uh, you know, address this this problem? Well, you know, we've got a great working relationship with the U.S. Attorney's Office, and uh, for any laws that you know need to be increased, I look to them, and I think many of us look to them to make those recommendations. Um, for the general folks out there, I think that it's also good just to check out the information on simple sites like our www.fbi.gov. We have a lot of sites for parents and children's safety online. Um, there's also uh, a Cyber Most Wanted, which is interesting to read. And then um, for to file complaints, the folks can go to www.ic3, which is our internet site where people can put their complaints, whether they've had email scams or business scams or whatever else. Um, and then we also work with staysafeonline.org for the children's um, better wellness online. 
FBI agent Judy Idy will be giving the keynote speech at the Tech Impact Summit in Farmington this Friday. The summit, organized by technology service firm the Walker Group, will bring together tech experts to discuss trends in the field, including ways to better protect against cyber attacks. Judy, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. Again, she's assigned to the FBI's New Haven Division Computer Crime Squad, coordinator of the Connecticut chapter of InfraGuard. Again, we want to thank you for coming up. Also, in studio with me is Matt Kozlowski. He's vice president for professional services at Kelser Corporation um, in East Hartford. Uh, we just have under a minute. Matt, any quick tips for our listeners or small business owners out there? Uh, real quick tip. Um, Judy talked about this. Uh, you can't rely on um, the FBI alone um, or, you know, people alone. People need to take responsibility. Um, you don't, you, you lock your doors, uh, your business, so you have an alarm system, things like that. I mean, people need to start taking their data equally as serious. And if people wanted more information about Kelser Corporation, yep. where do they go? Uh, the best place is our website, so kelsercorp.com. Um, there's a lot of uh, information about what we do, uh, how we do it, and um, specific uh, kind of examples of, of what we've done for people. And your Twitter page is pretty active, too. I saw some interesting yep. Yep, uh, articles, especially about that business email compromise yeah, that we heard yeah. about. So your Twitter handle? Uh, uh, v. Matt K. Um, Okay. Well, I want to thank you again, Matt Kozlowski, Vice President for Professional Services at Kelser Corporation. When we come back from the break, we'll revisit a conversation from earlier this week on casinos and gambling. This is where we live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Earlier this week, we aired a show about future casino development in our region. Specifically, we learned about the ongoing development of MGM Resorts International Casino in Springfield, Massachusetts. And we explored how Connecticut's Mashantucket Pequot and Mohegan tribes are hoping to complete, compete with Springfield, rather, by opening a third casino in Connecticut. A location has yet to be determined. Proponents of the gaming industry say that casinos are vital to thousands of jobs and much-needed revenue from slots that benefit state and local governments. But there's another side to gambling that goes beyond profit. Connecticut resident Adam Osman lost out a lot when he became addicted to gambling. He joins us in studio to talk about it. Adam, welcome to the show. Thank you for inviting me. So tell me a little bit about yourself. Uh, how long you've been a Connecticut resident? Uh, I've been in Connecticut almost, uh, I think, a little bit over 30 years now. And uh, I live in Farmington. I'm married. I have three young girls, daughters. Um, in the past, you struggled with uh, addiction to gambling. How did that begin? Uh, it began. It, it began a long time ago. Uh, slowly, uh, my first day in college, uh, I, was, I started working in a convenience store. And back then, it was only like a dollar ticket, and I played a couple of dollars here and there. But it got worse uh, when I bought my own store in 1998, and then I bought another store in 2002, 
And from there on, it got really, really worse. When you say it got worse, you were just have there was a compulsion to keep buying lottery tickets. Yes, uh, it, get, it get to the point like you know when you win, then you want to play more, and when you win again, you want to play more, and it just then it gets out of hand, and uh, got to the point where I lost everything in two thousand eight. So you own two convenience stores, so it must have been very easy for you to keep trying to buy these tickets. Yes, it is like being an alcoholic and owning your own. Uh, package store or either on your bar or either being a gambling addict and owning your own casino. So it's front of me all the time. And basically, that's what I was doing, you know, eating my own candy. Did uh, people that you were close with know that you were having this problem? Not really. Uh, you know, most addicts, they hit the addiction very well. Uh, so hardly anybody knew about it. But eventually, Connecticut Lottery knew about it because my sales was going so high and it you know, I became in the one of the biggest selling lottery store in New Britain. And uh, at one point, they even called me a meeting and asked asked me how come my sales are so up and uh, and how come I'm winning. And I told them because the reasons I play a lot, but I hit well for my family and friends. So walk us through this. So oftentimes when you buy lottery tickets, it's like a buck or two bucks depending on on the game. I mean, how much were you winning? And and how much overall did you spend on all these tickets? Well, uh, now they have, I mean, I don't know how much they have now, but back then they had a lot of the scratch tickets up to $30. And also you could play play three and play four up to 24 each ticket. So what I was doing it is I was playing it in. Most of the time I was playing it in play three, play four. And you could win up to $5,000 uh, play four. And uh, f- play three, you could win up to $500. Uh, but whatever I win... I was putting it all back and everything. For example, I'll give you an example. In 2007, uh, I won uh, $50,000. And after they deducted the tax, I ended up getting $37,500. Uh, that entire 37500 I played everything back and also my other income within a one month. And that's also to the point where Connecticut Lottery uh, kind of called. They called me uh, when they saw the data was getting uh, very high. So when did you hit rock bottom? You said that you lost everything. Uh, I hit the, it, it, it got really worse after 2007, after I hit the $50,000. Because uh, most addicts will tell you that once they win, everything gets really bad. So in 2008, the whole summer, I was playing everything. And uh, the summer of 2008, that's when I hit the bottom. I lost part of the stores. And you said a couple of times that the Connecticut Lottery Corporation had called you in and said, you know, you're, there's obviously a lot of sales at your convenience store. Did, did they recognize what was going on? Uh, so when they called me in a meeting, they asked me why my sales are so up and why I'm winning. And I told them the reason is I play a lot. And I, as a matter of fact, I gave them that example. I won a 50000 but I put the whole thing back. Uh, but as long as you keep paying them, uh, it's just a business to them and uh, – in my opinion, they didn't care uh, as long as I was paying them every week. And when I hit the bottom and I couldn't pay anymore, that's when they shut the lottery machine off. You said in, in the summer of 2008 you lost your stores? Yes, and also uh, they shut my lottery machine because I, could, I couldn't pay uh, anymore uh, the tickets that I play. Uh, and then they shut the machine off and they shut the store too. So at that point, your family knew that you had this addiction? Yes. Uh, by that point... In that whole summer, I wasn't eating well. I lost a lot of weight. Uh, so, you know, some people saw other signs. Uh, 
But then when I lost the store, and that's when everyone found out. So what happened then? Uh, what happened is I hit the bottom. I mean, a rock, rock bottom, uh, the worst possible way. And once I went to get a treatment, things got worse because uh, Connecticut Lottery and the state of Connecticut decided to go after me financially. And my addiction was bad, but what happened after was what turned out to be really worse for my family. Uh, my wife and kids have to move out of the state. Uh, I was basically living in a house with no heat, no water, nothing. Uh, and I was court ordered to pay Connecticut lottery every month. Uh, as a matter of fact, at one point I didn't even have any income, but uh, the court order was there to pay the tickets. And it took almost seven years later that uh, new charge finally decided in what was done to me was illegal and I didn't have to pay the tickets because none of the tickets was ever cash. And not only they wasn't cash, but I also pay a lot of money toward them uh, over the times and it had no value. I was just a piece of papers, but uh, I took my responsibility uh, when I stopped gambling and uh, I signed an agreement to pay for it, but then they went after me in court. And uh, So how much money were you on the hook for? Uh, I printed it in the ticket is nonstop for three weeks for, the, uh, for over $200,000. What the Connecticut lot is supposed to do is if you don't pay if you don't pay the first week, they're supposed to shut down your machine off. So the first week I printed it in, I think, close to $90,000 uh, tickets. None of the tickets was cash. Uh, they didn't shut the machine off, but they kept telling me, you have to come up with the money. So they continue to uh, have the machine. So the next week, I also printed it in again. I kept printing it again. They didn't shut it off the next week either. The third week came in, and I still printed it in. And I think going back, when I look back, it was me crying for help, basically. And every addict will tell you, uh, you know, they hit the bottom, they're seeking for help. So for me, printing the tickets and not cashing them, not looking at them was just a way for me, uh, my body telling me I need help. And eventually, after three weeks, they shut the machine off. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. In studio with me is Connecticut resident Adam Osmond. He's sharing his story of when he was addicted to gambling. And, um, you know, Adam, when people are hearing your story, um, there probably is some sympathy. But then there might be some listeners out there who think, well, it was your decision. You you chose to keep buying tickets. What would you say to them? That's true. Uh, it was my decision, uh, and I admitted what I did. And, of course, I went and got help. But it's also uh, the government, the state, the Connecticut lottery has its own responsibility. I got myself into trouble for being a gambling addicted, but they have also the responsibility that selling tickets to someone who they clearly know that is addict. For example, if someone goes to a package store and drunk, really drunk, or if they go to a bar and the bar owners knows that he or she is drunk and they kept feeding them to alcohol is, uh, you know, Everyone has his own responsibility, but of course, I have my own responsibility, and I took a responsibility, and I admitted what I did, and uh, and it's been almost uh, over eight years I haven't gambled. Mm-hmm. When we talk about addiction, there's a lot of stigma, whether it's addiction to, to substances, addiction to gambling. Why did you decide to become public with your story? Uh, because I wanted to show the public there's, uh, there's a human connection to it, because there's really clearly stigma. And at, at this day right now, um, I'm speaking to you right now, I'm facing it in, uh, you know, retaliation and discrimination and all kind of sorts because, you know, eight years ago, I was a gambling to addict. 
Uh, but I wanted to show the public that, you know, you, you could be an addict and you could recover from it. And I'm clearly someone who recovered from it. But it's still, you know, the stigma is still there. And right now as we speak, uh, you know, uh, I'm being uh, retaliated different ways for, for me to seek better jobs to support my family and my kids. Uh, so the stigma is there. And then there's people who always don't want you to be speak publicly about what happened. Uh, and but I wanted to show the public there's other ways, and you could get better, and I did get better, and I haven't gambled over eight years, and I teach other people how to get better, uh, continue their life without gambling. So when you say that even today you face retaliation for um, your gambling addiction, are you talking about how people perceive you? And- yeah, how, how people perceive me, but also through employment. Uh, you know, current. You know, current, currently places that I apply jobs, uh, people are sending it in an uh, article about me and my history mm-hmm. anonymously. Some of that stuff that I found out, you know, uh, was being sent to each other uh, anonymously. So people then perceive you that just that just because you was addicted eight years ago that, you know, you are somehow disabled and can't function. Uh, so the issues that still go. And that's the reason why I did a documentary movie. It's called... Uh, out of luck uh, to show the public this in this human life and that gambling destroys family, but you know there's a better life if you stop gambling. You said that you haven't gambled since uh, 2008. How yes. did you how did you get past um, you know having this compulsion? What worked for you? Uh, what worked for me two things. Uh, first, I went to a state uh, sponsor program, uh, and uh, I'm not sure if it's changed now, but uh, it was just really disaster for me to go there because those programs was funded by the state and the uh, Connecticut Lottery and the casino. And uh, if you go in there, you always hear that, oh, yeah, this is a great program. They are funding, but uh, it didn't work for me. So what I did is I went to Gamblers Anonymous uh, program, which is really uh, the, one of the best uh, 12-step programs uh, this, uh, for gambling addiction. And they don't get funded from anybody, so they don't have to worry about it in anybody's, uh, what they say. So that program worked very well for me. But then eventually what I found out, a friend of mine introduced me to running, and I started running about five, five and a half years ago. And through running, then also that helped me the most. You said at first you went to a program that's actually um, through the state. So some of the money that uh, the state of Connecticut gets through the slot revenue pays for this uh, program yeah. to help people that are struggling with uh, gambling addiction. Yes. Uh, the money comes in from the Connecticut Lottery and the casino uh, fund the programs. So you said a friend introduced you to running. That became your new outlet. Um, how was it when you first started running? And, um, you know, I understand you're running in the Hartford Marathon this weekend. Yes. Uh, a friend of mine I met in a treatment program uh, used to come to the uh, – every Wednesday the meeting, he used to come in with different T-shirts. Say it's a 5K, 10K, marathon. So one day I asked him, you know, what all these shirts are about. He said, oh, yeah, come with me. Uh, we're going to run a race uh, this weekend. And uh, that was uh, my June 2011. Uh, we went to North Haven, uh, and I lined up, and I thought that I was going to be able to run, but uh, I took off just like everybody else. And uh, within two, three minutes to the race, I thought I was dying. Mm-hmm. Uh, eventually, I walk, walk, walk. I finished uh, almost at the end. It took me 39 minutes to finish the 5K. But then I realized it in that I have to train more and I could get better at it. And I start running with him here, there, and uh, 
you know, a few years later, uh, from 39 minutes, I'm almost uh, cutting that in half. And uh, now my best time for 5K was, was 20 minutes and 8 seconds. And since then, I run, you know, 10K. I run half marathons. I run a full marathon. I run an ultra marathon. So I run all, almost over 250 races since then. Um, I wanted to let our listeners know uh, the reason we invited you on uh, to the show is uh, because of your response to a show we did just a few days ago, again, that focused on, um, you know, more casinos coming up in the region, whether it's in Springfield or one soon to be announced, some location in Connecticut uh, through a joint partnership between the Mashantucket Pequot and Mohegan tribes. Do you feel like people just just want to ignore or uh, they forget about there's another side to, to gambling? Uh, yeah, I testified the legislator plenty of times. Uh, and always I hear that people just talking about the revenue, the revenue, the revenue. And hardly no one ever talks about it, the social cost. And if they talk about it, they say, that, oh, it's just a 1% or it's just, you know, a few people here and there. But they don't, what they don't understand, the toll that it takes families for, even if it's a one person who stopped gambling or who is a gambling addict, they affect their family, you know, for myself, I had three young girls. Uh, it affected my wife. It affected everybody. So that one person could affect another 10 people minimum. Uh, and in the state of Connecticut, we already have one of the largest lottery sales in the, in the country. Uh, they added in Kino. Uh, now you're going to add it in a couple of more casinos, even one. It's just too much. Uh, and now hardly no one talking about it in the dark side of gambling. And if they do, for example, they'll just say, you know, it's a small percentage. But it's really serious problem. And I seen myself and I went to gambling treatment and I seen people struggling uh, day in and day out. And I seen families lost their houses and I've seen, I've seen people who die. Uh, so I seen everything. And when people talk about revenue, uh, I always remind them there's a really serious social cost. Uh, this, the zip code down the street from here is one of the poorest zip code in Albany Avenue. And that's the number one lottery sales in this in this state. And if you add it in our casino somewhere close to this area, uh, people just going to go play more and spend more money that they don't have. I've been speaking to Adam Osmond. He's a resident of Farmington. He, at one point, he struggled with the gambling addiction. He worked to overcome that addiction, found running to be a good outlet. And this weekend, he'll be running in the Hartford Marathon. Adam, I want to thank you for coming in and sharing your story. Thank you. We reached out to the Connecticut Lottery Corporation to respond to Adam's story. The Connecticut Lottery Corporation had no comment. Where We Live is produced by Lydia Brown and Jeff Tyson. Our technical producer is Kion Wolf. WNPR's executive producer is Katie Tularski. You can learn more about our show and listen to our archives at wmpr.org slash where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening.